0: Well, uh, welcome back to uh, another episode of uh, Building a Biblical Worldview in 2022, uh, a series that we began a couple of weeks ago. We're in part three right now, and uh, glad to have you joining with us. These They're like building blocks that build one on another, and so I'd encourage you, if you missed the first two, to to go back either on Spotify, YouTube, or on our website and listen to them. It'll help you understand some of what we're talking about today. Today's is kind of a strange one um, for uh, for me to share, because... I, I'm not able to fully expound on each of these points. We're just gonna leave some, it's going to leave some loose ends, which uh, can be really bad or really good, depending on what you do with them. Uh, if you take the loose end as being, well, he didn't say this and this and this, uh, that's probably a bad idea. But if you take the loose end and say, well, hmm, I wonder what I believe about that, or I wonder what Scripture says about that, and you begin to dig in for yourself, I think it could be an incredibly good thing. So either way, let's, uh, let's jump right in. Um, just as a quick recap, We've been talking about building a a worldview, a biblical worldview, uh, and to be intentional about doing it because rarely... Rarely do we consider our worldview. We talked about it being like glasses. You rarely look at your glasses. The idea is that you look through them. And uh, we don't often consider our worldview or how we see the world. And the reason we need to is that our worldview, it affects, directly affects our actions and our interactions with our world. So uh, as Jesus followers, our worldview is, it's incredibly important on what it's based on. Our worldviews are based on different thoughts, ideologies, opinions, perspectives, and if we're following Jesus, we would see that, um, we learned in, week, I believe week one, that his, his worldview was based on Scripture. His response to, to, to people, his response to temptations was, well, Scripture says, Scripture says. And uh, we challenged you last week to not just know what, what it um, says, but what it means as well. Uh, to know what God meant by what he said and to know to, to just have that heart to know the word of God for yourself but to know the God of the word uh, and and who, who that uh, who that word describes and then we also encourage you to, to look at the whole of scripture not to just take you know bits and pieces from it and then you know build a build a, a worldview based on just a, a verse here and there a bumper sticker or whatever but that you would read the, the whole uh, uh Old and New Testament as one story that points to Jesus. Old Testament pointing towards him, New Testament pointing back towards him and how that affects our life. And uh, we also said in both weeks that there will always be it always has been this this tendency for culture and the church to drift away from truth and so we want to take a look at some of those uh, a look at some of those things that those, those things we drift from and, and to, to examine our worldview and so today I'd encourage you, if you're watching online I'd encourage you to take some notes there's gonna be lots of thoughts shared and to just jot them down for you guys it's good because if you didn't bring you know a, a notepad or whatever you can just pause the video uh, run and get a, a pen and paper and come back and, and we'll be right where we left off So I encourage you to do that. The other reason why I encourage you to take notes is you will remember more just simply because you wrote it down as you heard it. So if he's like saying, you know, I wish I remembered that point, you will more likely remember it just simply by writing it down. So today we are going to jump into the topic of family. What does scripture say about family and why do we care? Why do we care? I guess because we said our worldview affects our actions and interactions with our family, with other families, and and there are different worldviews and different perspectives in our culture of what family is or what family should be. There's a guy named William uh, Ruckelshaus. I don't even quite know how to pronounce his last name, but he made this statement. He says this: the family is the building block of society. For whatever solidarity there is in society, the family is the building block. Some others have quoted as saying the family is a building block. There's lots of different, um, different groups and studies and organizations that, that look into this, uh, the, the building blocks of, of society and family is, is on every list. But whether it's a building block or whether it's the building block, either way, it's an important part. Of, our, of the stability of our, our community and, and uh, some of them, uh, they, even, they even make those statements that the stability of the community depends on the stability of the families that comprise it. Some would go even further to say that the foundation of the nation is only as strong as the families in it. That the family, and these are secular things, this is not Christian stuff, this is just stuff stuff, that they recognize that the strength of the family determines the strength of the community, determines the strength of the nation. And we know it. I mean, we know it just in, just in our own um, experiences, whether it's ourselves or people we know and care about, uh, that when a family's broken, it has long-lasting effects on people. You know, there's tons of studies and stats that show the links between broken families uh, and juvenile crime, 10 to 15% higher. The uh, long-term incarceration uh, in prisons, 70% of them have come from broken families. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a, an increase in mental health issues, uh, They have, <laughs> uh, increased academic issues, suicide rates, social problems, and even poverty. All, all fruit of this, when, when a family is, is broken, and it doesn't have to be that way for everyone but it just statistically it shows that that it family's that important that when it, when it when it's broken it causes all these other problems you know we've we think maybe back to family and you start thinking about the Bible and these, you know, the the old stories. There's this tendency in our culture to think of like, oh, it's the traditional family, you know. It's like, oh, you're going to talk about like Leave it to Beaver and, uh, you know, the little house on the prairie. and And we say, you know, it's like going from little house on the prairie to like modern family or this is us. That families have changed, like, in the, it, we, we need to be progressive about what, how we define family because it's, it's not the same as it once was. And it's true, it's not the same as it once was. You know, we face cultural ideologies that want to move as far away from the traditional antiquated ideas, they would call it, of family. There's some that, that ha- have actually focused on the deconstruction of the traditional family. Different, different ideologies that that, that tie um, that that tie the original traditional family model to this word called patriarchy, and, and they're like we're against patriarchy in 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 all areas of life, and it's this this intent intentional deconstruction of the family unit as a result. And, and to be honest, family just, it's just, in modern days, it's just complicated. You know, there's all these different um, uh, words that, that uh, describe a traditional, modern, broken, blended, atypical, nuclear, extended, single parent, same sex. In short, it's just complicated. It's like you look at the picture, and you're like, well, just pick one. Or try and teach kids, hey, here's what here's what family is, or can be, or looks like. And some of those uh, on the screen are what what uh, families uh, look like. But what does Scripture say about family? Our world would say that any one of those is considered family. You and your dog, you know, you and a baby carriage, assuming there's something in it, you know, family. But what does Scripture say about family? So speaking of building blocks, you know, in the series in week one. We looked at uh, the choice that original man, Adam and Eve, original man had, and we also realized that that's the choice that every man has, including me and you, every woman, every child. Do I want to acknowledge God in my worldview? Do I want God in the picture? Do I want God's view in my worldview? In week two, we looked at the perfect creation that was soon broken by sin and is no longer perfect. And we realize that each and every single one of us is inherently um, um, evil at the core, not, not inherently good like our culture would want us to, to say. A biblical worldview sees it for what it really, really is. And we realize that if everyone's broken, then that's affected the original design of family as well. And so we're going to look at just contrasting the ideal design with the real experiences that most of us live. And so today, I want to just look at three things in regards to family. And, and I hope to just sort of pique your interest, to dig a little deeper in the areas that maybe he drops in your heart. And you say, oh, that, that, that's for me. Or, oh, man, I wonder about that. Uh, like we often say at the end, what jumped out at you? To, to, to whatever jumped out at you, I encourage you to jump in and dig a little deeper in that area. So three things. Family is a, a design, a purpose, and a target or a destination. And, and again, they're not exhaustive. And so let's look at, you know, uh, the first thought that family by design or family as a design, that it's not like accidental in how it came to be. Uh, a biblical worldview if we're building a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview would acknowledge that, that, that God is in the picture. You know, as we read, you know, the very first sentences of Scripture, it says, In the beginning, God. Just simply stating that, that this is how it all began. Someone was there. And it refers to him as God, as Yahweh. And, uh, you know, we look around us, biblical worldview says that, that, that creation speaks. And what does creation speak of? Well, it just speaks of the fact that there is a creator. Nothing existed without him. We, we wouldn't see anything else in our world that we'd say, oh, you know, that thing just happened to be there. No, if it's, if it's been created, somebody created it. And then we look at things who say, you know, it, the, the, that there's a design to it. It's not just like, it's not just that, you know, all this matter was kind of tossed in random chaos, but it's, it's the opposite. It's that, that out of all that chaos came this like incredible order that we base all of our scientific method on is the fact that this order has continued and that, 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 that the order will continue, that whatever you test, you know, in a, in a, in a lab, you, you can count on the fact that certain things are going to be constant all the time. You know, that we, we know that there's the 24 hours in a day, the 365 days in a year. We know that, that uh, we experience the four seasons in order all the, the time, the design. You know, as we read... A couple weeks ago that in the beginning as God created the heavens and the earth, there was like this, this uh, creativity, this design that was on everything, including man. And as we look at this, we realize a little further, as we look a little further, we realize that it was God who designed this thing called family This thing called family. You know, it's an original design from the original designer. And family involved two things, marriage and children, among among other emotions and other things. But these are the the characters that play a part in it. So if you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, Obviously, in building a biblical worldview, we're going to study scripture. So Genesis 2, verse 22 to 24 says this. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. So uh, if kind of the backstory for those who didn't go to Sunday school, you know, God created Adam and he had created all these animals. He brought all the animals to Adam and he named them. But Adam realized there was none that, that matched him. There was none that was his match. And God was like, oh, this isn't good. We, gotta, we have to make a match for him. And so it's, he says, he put Adam into deep sleep, took the rib out. And then it says, and God made a woman from that rib and brought her to the man. And 23, it says, at last, the man exclaimed, this one's bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken from man. Verse 24, it says, this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and he's joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Those words, Jesus would actually later quote that in a conversation with some religious leaders of his day. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that a little bit later. But it's Jesus who qualifies this statement. Remember we said it all points to Jesus? The reason we believe this portion of Scripture in Genesis, in the beginning, that God created man and, and woman and brought them together, is because that's what Jesus, you know, God in a body, just, just said about, about Scripture. Jesus would say that this design for marriage... That there was a design for it. It wasn't just, it, did, it didn't just sort of happen or evolve. There was a design. What was his design for marriage? One man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. One man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. And if you hear that and you, know, you're, you get a little offended hearing that statement, can, can, can I just simply say this? I was just asked that, that you would listen right to the end. And here's why. Because this message could pretty much offend every single person in the room. You know, I, I, I might even offend myself by the time I get through uh, all of this. You know, one thing, uh, I think it's John Cleese, he's, uh, he's, he had mentioned, uh, he says, you know, sometimes we, we get our emotions or we allow our emotions to control us. And if we don't get control of our emotions, we want everyone else to, ch- to change their behavior. You know, we want everyone to not don't say things that are going to make me upset. But I would just encourage you, if it rubs you the wrong way a little bit, then maybe that's one of those areas where we're just going to, you're just going to need to dig in a little. But I, but I would encourage you to listen right through to the end. That his design was one man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime. And that God then commanded this couple to go and populate the planet. And we see that in Genesis one twenty eight. It says, and God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. You reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry on the ground. You know, we, we, we've learned that man, humanity, man and woman were made in the very image of God. They're made in his image to be like him. You know, the, uh, one of the things that we see in this is that even that creativity begets creativity, that, that God gave man and woman the opportunity to create human life, to produce new little humans. Uh, we call them children. You know, Paul... In the New Testament, he gives us a glimpse of what the original family, you know, what God's original design for family would look like. Uh, and here's, here's what it says, Colossians 3, verse 18. If you have your Bible, go, go to Colossians chapter 3 or jot it down. You can look at it later. But, he, but Paul's calling out to, to, to the, to the to believers uh, in Colossians, the ones who want to follow Christ, who want to follow God, he's like, hey, this is, this is what God's idea or God's picture or God's design for a family is. here's what it's supposed to look like. I know maybe around you don't see this, but this is what it's supposed to look like. And here's what he says. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Pretty simple thoughts. You know, wives submit, you know, husbands love, children obey, and fathers don't aggravate your kids. You know, already, I, you know, maybe for you, this is where you're like, oh, I don't like hearing that. That wives submit thing, that, that just gets me going. But maybe if we just slow down for just a second, could you, could you just picture, could you just picture this family? If it was like, if it was, if it was operating In each one of them, in their own role, perfectly. Not like we know people today, but that they were perfectly in their roles. You know, wives submitting to husbands, a husband loving his wife, children obeying their parents, fathers not, you know, fathers creating this, this great environment for their kids. You know, this mutual submission to one another. It's not just wives submit, and we'll see that later, but mutual submission. That there would be this overflow of love and honor and respect and, and obedience, etc. It's like this seamless, beautiful, harmonious existence that you get to be a part of called family. You know, as I was trying to think of, you know, like an illustration for this, uh, I thought of like, you know, like a symphony, like an orchestra playing a song. I thought, what if family could could sound something like this? The whole family playing together this beautiful music. But I don't know about you, but if I, I think about you know, the, the lives that I see around me, I think you know, our reality is maybe a little bit more like this. <laughs> you know, just like it's just a mess sometimes and I, I like the conductor there, he's just going for it, giving it no matter no matter what. But that that when I look at family roles and, and you know, in life and even in my own family sometimes it doesn't it's not all harmonious and smooth all the time. You know, like we said earlier, the original design, that that harmonious symphony, it, it got broken. It got broken, and it's been affected by brokenness ever since. That broken begets broken, begets broken, till we're kind of today trying to figure out, well, how does relationships and families work when you got two broken people to try and make something that's that's whole? You know, as you read through your Bible, you realize that Scripture is full of imperfect families. You know, the 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 truth is that the Bible is not like this this perfect story, this perfect love story, like a a Hallmark movie or something, it's just real and raw. And you know, even just reading through Genesis, we're reading through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We see these broken men, broken by the whole cycle of sin, and they make these broken decisions that lead to more brokenness. Like Abraham, right? He lies about his wife, tells people, oh, that's my sister. He literally gives his wife away to two different kings so that they don't kill him. Instead of protecting her, he's like, hey, you go, you protect me. You know, don't tell them. And then later Abraham and his wife, they can't have a child. And so his wife's like, hey, you know, go, you know, go have a baby with my, with my maid. And he's like, okay, honey, but only because you said so. And, and then he goes and he has a, has a child with her. And then he has a child later with his wife. And it's just, it's the, the actual, the repercussions of, of um, Ishmael and, and Isaac. They, they, we, we experience the, the pain and brokenness of that still to this day. You know, and then, you know, his grandson, Jacob, Jacob takes multiple wives. You know, he marries one because he was tricked into it. Then he gets to marry the one that he wants. Then he marries their two, uh, two servant girls. And so he's got four wives. Well, you know, when you have four wives, what happens? All of a sudden he has one that's his favorite. You know, it's dangerous to have a favorite wife. You should never have to be able to say that. Well, I can say that. Beth is my favorite wife. Uh, and you know, but ideally, that, that's not the way that things were supposed to be. And then, and then he has a dozen kids. And he, you know, he's so used to having a favorite spouse. He now has a favorite child as well. His name's Joseph. And he, he treats Joseph better than all the others. And he actually tells the others, he's my favorite son. They get to see their dad treat him like a favorite child. You know, I have a favorite daughter, but I don't have a favorite son. You know, because having a favorite child, it's it doesn't go well for anybody. But here's where we see these biblical stories, these biblical stories of characters who who just have uh, experienced the, the the broken symphony of family. See, now if you say, well, if it's a biblical worldview, I could just pick some of those verses. Say, ah, oh, Jacob married four people, or you know, he he had a favorite son, so I can have a. Fa-. That's not how you build a biblical worldview. You know, as you read through scripture, it's important to understand a couple things. Some things are descriptive and other things are prescriptive. Things that you read that are a description of things, that, that's, that's for our understanding, but it's not for us to try and, and emulate. But then there's the prescriptive things, the verses that explain to us, this is how you are to live, especially in the New Testament. We're talking about this is how you live as a follower of Jesus. You know, scripture often those stories describe the cycle of brokenness. And we see that over and over and over again. And a biblical worldview acknowledges that there there is a specific design for family, even if other ones didn't attain that or didn't reach that. There is a specific design for it. And then second, a biblical worldview recognizes that there was a purpose to that design. That it wasn't just like willy-nilly, oh God's like, hey, you know what, I think these two people should get together and have some kids and you know, we'll just call that a family and and oh cool, look what I designed. No, there was there was a real purpose behind that purpose including things like relationship and and companionship and and unity and children and and later on to, to actually be a picture of Christ in the church, the relationship that he wants to have with us. That's that's that idea of marriage. But you know, one thing that that I realize that we don't often think about when it comes um, to families and, their, and and family relationships, is that we, we we don't often think about how how family um, compares to other spheres in our world. When we think about um, the sp- the spheres. That that's a, it's an interesting statement. I learned uh, some just reading a guy by the name of um, Abraham Kuyper. Uh, Abraham Kuyper—that's a good, strong Dutch name. Uh, he was actually a pastor in his younger years. He actually became prime minister of Holland in the 1800s. It was this man who studied the word, and he was—he uh, he coined this phrase called sphere sovereignty. And, and this is a topic we may talk about, you know, a little bit over the next couple of weeks, but. He defines sphere sovereignty as this. A sphere is an arena where interactions take place and where some sort of authority is exercised. A sphere is an arena where interactions take place and where some sort of authority is exercised. And he would describe family as one of those spheres. There's a sphere of interaction between husband and wife, between parents and children. And there's some sort of authority... That is exercised there. You know, parents have this authority uh, over their children as they're under their care. And he, he, he just um, stated it this way, that there are numerous spheres... In society, and it's just a quick diagram here of some of the ones that God designed. Number one, family is the first one that He designed, the first sphere that that there's an authority, a, a governance over family. There's certain things that are are family responsibilities, and then you know the government itself. That, that's a that's a God ordained idea, especially um, you know family came before the fall, but the government and church, those are things that came after after sin, after the brokenness. Things that were to help. Uh, these broken people, not kill each other. Uh, that's, that's where government comes in. And then God designs this thing called the church, which would be his body on the planet. Which all, and, and all three of these things have their own governance, uh, their own authority, their own um, sphere. And there's, uh, there's other ones. But the thought was this, that, that God designed the structure of authority That would be under his authority, which we're going to look at uh, more in the coming weeks. In Matthew 28, here's the the thought. Matthew 28, and we looked at this uh, before Christmas, but the the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority. He's like, I've been given all authority in heaven on earth. You know, and we often ask, how much authority? Well, all. Like, he's in charge of all. All authority means he's the king over all the other kings. He's the Lord over any other Lord. He's the authority over all other authorities. That, that's, that's who he is. So what does that look like in a picture? Well, th- that looks like the, the idea of God being over family. Um, do we have that slide? Yeah, God being authority over family, authority over government, authority over church. That ultimately, each one of these is accountable to him for how they steward that authority. Huh. A lot of times we don't think about family having you know, an, an authority. And here's why I think it matters for today's talk. You know, Adam and Eve went on to have children as they had been uh, commanded to do so. And then their children had children. Psalm 127 actually tells us that children, they're a gift from the Lord. That uh, happy is the man whose quiver is full. Uh, that that it, It's a blessing to have children in our lives. And, and the role of parents is to love and to nurture and to instruct their children. You know, Moses would later on write um, at the, he, he wrote about in Genesis as, as God designed family. In Deuteronomy, he wrote to the parents uh, of the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 to 8, he had just given them all of these instructions from the Lord. In verse 6, he says, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. He says, repeat them again and again to your children. Some of the translations are, teach them again and again to your children. What all of those commands of the Lord. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Talk about these instructions that God has given given you as parents. Teach them to your children. In Proverbs 22, you know, Solomon writes about this. He's like, direct or train or teach your children onto the right path. And when they're older, they won't leave it. You know, some have mentioned that this is in, resp- in, re- in response to money. Teach your kids how to use money so they don't become like a, a servant to the, to the lender. And he says, if you teach them when they're young, they'll, they'll understand that when they're older. But it works across the board. It's that idea of teach your kids. Don't, the, your kids aren't, you know, there to, uh, to, um, to just kind of learn on their own. Whatever they want to do, whatever they want to decide, that's not biblical worldview. Biblical worldview is instruct your children in the way that they should go. You know, we had a little uh, dog way back in the day called Lucy. She was a Jack Russell Terry. I was just thinking of this now. <laughs> you know, they told us when you get a Jack Russell Terry, you've got a short window of time. He said to train them because otherwise they will have trained you. And Lucy had trained Beth and I uh, incredibly quickly. To, to basically, she was the boss of the house and whatever she wanted, she got to do what she wanted, when she wanted, and if she, you know, she, it, she just, it, that, that was, tr- was true in our lives. It was a good thing we learned with a dog so that later on when you have children, it's that, it's that same principle. They're, they're, they're going to test and they're going to push the limits to try and see, you know, this is, this, is what, uh, this is what I want to do, these are the things, and, and we've been instructed as parents to teach and to train and to equip our kids for the, for the way that life should be lived, especially when it comes to having a, a scriptural worldview. You know, scripture tells us that children are a gift from God, but they're also a responsibility from Him. And they are under the authority of family first. You know, I showed the slide, the original one with God over top of it. We see God and, and family. But, you know, I think in today's day and age, it's like the, 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 the state Wants to try and take that that role of saying, you know, the the children belong to us. Can can I just simply say that the the, your children do not belong to the state? And I know it doesn't come across in that sense where they say, oh, your children are ours, but the state should not be determining what is best for your children. Not not with a scriptural worldview. You know, state mandates do not override God's design for family. Education as well is, is the responsibility of the parents. It's not, you know, not the state. It's not the church uh, responsibility to educate children. That, that's on the parents. It doesn't mean you have to homeschool. That, that's not what it says. You can, you can delegate that authority, but you can't abdicate that authority where you're like, oh, you know, I send my kids to school. They're going to learn whatever they need to learn. You need to be knowing what your children are learning in school. They're being taught much more than the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. They're, they're learning ideology. They're learning ideologies that will affect their worldview, which will affect their actions and interactions in the world. And that, as a parent, is is our responsibility. Uh, And to to realize that we are responsible for for the safety, for the health, for the well-being, for the nurturing, for the education of our children. And that was by design. Design. But if we don't understand that that sphere of authority is there, something else will gladly come in and take that authority and just decide, hey, we will teach your children what we we think the design should be. But that idea that there's this authority was set up by design. And there's an authority structure in the home. You heard it in those verses. Children, honor your parents. Obey your parents in the Lord. And, And it even says, it will go better for you if you do. You know, we see that sometimes there's a shift in those things where like, you know, if there's a family business, maybe the son's the boss and, and he can tell dad what to do, right? Because on the job site, hey, dad, you do this because I'm the boss. But you come back into the home, dad's the boss. The kids don't get to tell dad, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. And, you know, we've seen in our culture that there's this there's this overwhelming um, thing in families where it becomes all about the kids. Everything revolves around the kids. It's like, take them here, take them here. They got to do this. Oh, the kid wants that. Well, then we got to do this. We got to do that. And you know, what, you know what happens? Marriages are just so frazzled trying to take care of every, you know, not need of the ch- of the children, but their wants and their desires. They're like, oh, we got to do, we got to do, we got to do, we got to do this. That their marriage begins to drift. The marriage begins to fall apart. It, it, it's, it's, it's an abuse of the, of the order, the authority that God's placed in a home that was thereby designed. Can I tell you parents that the very best thing you can do for your children, the very best thing you can do for your children is to, to love their mom or to love their dad. That, that's the absolute best thing you can do for your child is to love your spouse. And maybe you're not even together anymore. You're like, oh, that's too late for that. It's not too late for that. You can, you can even love your spouse, the ones you're not with. You're like, how, how do you do that? Because love's not a romantic thing. We're gonna talk about that in a couple weeks. Love's a choice. Love chooses to be patient with them. Love chooses to be kind to them. Love chooses not to be rude, not to be self-centered, not to be focused on, you know, uh, when, when things go wrong for them to be cheering, but to actually rejoice when truth wins out. That's what love's all about. And that's the best thing you can do for your children. Why? Because it was by design that kids would grow up in, in homes where parents love each other, choose to love one another. You know, so that's the thought that family was by design. Family has a purpose, not, not in, in an authority structure in and of itself, but also in society. And then the third thing, family's a target. And I wrestled with this word of what to use for this because we use that, we use that item or that thought about the target Uh, last week. But I I believe that family really is a target in two ways. In two ways. I I think number one is just leave that target picture up there. I believe the family is a target for our our enemy. That, you know, there's so much long-term damage can happen when a family is broken. And and we need to be aware of the fact that that Satan will be attacking the family unit every and any way that he can. And, you know, oftentimes he uses people. It's easy for us to participate in that, in, in the targeting of other people. You know, it's, it's easy for us, even as Jesus followers, to see the target on the, on the other person, you know, and, and feel like, well, if I'm going to have a biblical worldview, then I got to tell everyone else that they got to have a biblical worldview. They got to they measure up to, 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 you know, what I re- read in the Bible. And, and we end up using the Bible to sort of bash people who don't, you know, fit, the, fit what we see in the, in the scriptural narrative. And that's not what this is about, and that's not what having a biblical worldview is for. You know, we see it with Jesus, and we're going to come back to where we started with this, where Jesus is having this conversation with some of the religious leaders of his day, and they, they come up to him, and they, they've, they've, got some, they've, they've got some questions around marriage and family, but not because they want to know, but because they want to trap him and trick him and Matthew, uh, an eyewitness, writes it down for us. Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came and they tried to trap Jesus with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reasons? No-fault divorce is what they're asking. Jesus, you know, is that, is that allowed? Because they know. They know that there's people listening in the crowd who have, you know, been the result of no-fault divorce. And he's wondering, what's Jesus going to say about them? You know, and if he says, hey, they're okay, or that's okay, then, you know, he's definitely going to be coming against um, what he's been talking about with marriage. And so he's going to have to contradict himself. So, so we've got him either way. That's always a dangerous spot to be, thinking you've got God figured out. Jesus, again, in, in just in the genius, he says this, haven't you read the scriptures? Here, here he comes back again to that worldview that's based on scripture. He says, haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record this, that from the beginning, at the very beginning, God made them male and female. Verse five, and he said, this explains um, why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And then he says this, since they are no longer two, but one, let no one else split apart what God has joined together. They ask him, well, then why did Moses say, and some, say, some translations say command, then why did Moses command in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted not commanded. He permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it wasn't what God had originally intended. It wasn't God's original design. He says, I'll tell you this. Whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. I mean, wow, just these, these words that these Pharisees were, you know, probably not expecting in that, in that moment. And the ones that sometimes feel like, you know, a whole lot of weight can can I just say that Jesus was described as being full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth, and we see it right here in, in this story. These. Pharisees come up to Jesus and they're talking to him about the real, what's really happening in, in real life. You know, people are getting this no-fault divorce and that, you know, some of them, some of the Pharisees, maybe they were hoping that they could, you know, I don't like my wife, but you know, she hasn't been unfaithful, but I want to get rid of her anyways. How can I do this? Maybe I can get Jesus' permission or, and they're talking about the real. And what does Jesus do? He, he takes them and says, no, no, scripture says. And I know you're talking about what's, what's real but let me remind you of the ideal. Let me remind you of what the design for this. Let me remind you of what you've been called to. And he says to them, you know, Moses permitted it. Why? He permitted it because of the brokenness. But that wasn't God's original design. You know, he, he, he didn't let that, the, the ideal hinder him from ministering to the real. Like Jesus wasn't condemning everybody around. He even simply says that. He says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came that they might be saved. You know, and for, I think that's good, a, a good um, example for us to follow as well. That when that feeling is for us to say, oh, we can use scripture to condemn. He's like, that, that's not really the point. The point was to call people to Christ. And I don't know about you, but I find myself often in that place. I don't like that tension. I don't like the tension. I don't, I don't like being right here between, you know, the ideal and the real. I, it's like we want to pick a side, don't we? We want to, we're like, well, you know, the ideal. This is what scripture says. So if you don't line up with scripture, well, then you're out. And for others, they're like, you know what? My, my life is so far from that. My, my experience is so far from that. That this is where i live i, I don't I, I don't even want to acknowledge that that exists cuz it makes me feel terrible about this and so i'm just going to focus on i'm just going to focus on the real and we want to choose one one or the other but i guess the question is this are we willing to embrace an ideal that may never be real for our current relationship marriage or family Are we willing to say, you know what, I'm going to put on a biblical worldview, even if that's not my current experience right now? Or are we tempted to lose sight of that so that we'll feel better about where we're at or we'll feel better about where people are at in our lives? Do we want to try and change the truth, you know, change scripture to, to maybe mean something different than what it says so that, that I can feel better about, you know, my family members or feel better about, you know, my past or, or the current situation. Uh, that this is what, you know, attempted to say, well, this is what that scripture means to me rather than just simply taking it for what it is. And Jesus wasn't, he wasn't opposed to the tension. You know, when the religious leaders were asking him, basically, basically asking him these questions, saying, Jesus, what are you going to do to all those divorced people? You know, here's our question. We got, what are you going to do with all those? You know, what are you going to do to them? You know, Jesus so often explained that he didn't come to do anything to them. He came to do something for them. He didn't, he didn't come to like, you know, try and bash everybody around. He came to do something for them. Like we said in John 3, he says, I didn't come to condemn, I came to save. And what is he doing? He's calling people to receive his grace, but to embrace his truth. He says, like, he doesn't deny the fact that the ideal exists. He doesn't like, oh, you know what? You're right. That's not, you know, that's not possible. We're just not going to go with that. He's like, listen, that's still the ideal. That's still the target. I know you, I know you missed the target, but that's where my grace comes in. But my grace doesn't come in to just leave you in this place. My grace is drawing you to to aim for truth. To aim for truth. What happens then? The ideal becomes the target for us. Instead of somebody else and everything else being the target, the ideal becomes the target for us. To return, this call to return to living in our relationships in a way that honors Christ. And so, I just want to read this, this, this portion from Ephesians five. It's kind of want this kind of be the, the last portion of scripture. It's a little bit lengthy, but I just wanted to settle in because I believe this is why Paul wrote it in the way that he wrote it. You know, to the Colossians, he just gave bullet points. You know, wives submit. You know, husbands love. Children obey. And and fathers don't exa- uh, You know, don't don't uh, exacerbate your children. But I just want to read as as Paul explains to the Ephesians, he flushes this out. And I know right now we're tempted to, you know, we're always tempted to have somebody else's face come into the, to the, to the picture when we read scriptures. Like, oh yeah, that's so-and-so. Oh, my mother-in-law, man, she needs this. Or, man, I hope my wife's listening. You know, I just want to encourage you just to listen for your verses today. What's, what's being written to you in the portion of the family that you, that you fill. And that you would say, okay, Father, help me to live out those verses in obedience to you. Help me to live out my part in in obedience to you. Here's Ephesians 5, verse 21. And further, submit to one another. What's that word? Yield to one another. Give right of way to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ, for what he's done in your life. Verse 22, for wives, this means... This yielding to one another, it means yield to your husbands as you would to the Lord. For a husband is head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Here he's talking about those authority things again. He says he's the savior of his body, the church. And as the church submits and yields to Christ, so you wives should submit and yield to your husbands in everything. Verse 25, for husbands... Husbands, you shouldn't, don't be listening to what I just read. Listen to what I'm about to read. For husbands, this means love your wives. That be submitted to one another, this is what it means. It means to love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Not love your wives the way you think, you know, you're you're great at at, um, showing love in the way you think is amazing. He's like, no, no, love them the way Christ loved the church. How did he do it? He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church, without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife, he actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but he feeds it and he cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we're members of his body. As scriptures say, a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. He says, this is a great mystery, but actually it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Verse 33, he says, so again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Verse, in the next chapter, he goes on says, children. Obey your parents because you belong to the Lord. Why? Why do you obey them? Because you belong to the Lord. For this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and your mother. It's the first commandment that comes with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you. And you will have a longer life on the earth. And then verse 4, fathers or parents even... Don't provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. You see it again and again, just like original design, that loving, harmonious relationship, that responsibility to train and instruct children in the way they should go. It's this idea of family that if, we, if, if, if that, that idea of family is strong, it will affect the rest of society and the world. You know, for those who are listening today and you hear and it, it just sounds so far away from your lived experience. The challenge for us, like I said, is to toss that ideal out the window and just embrace the real. But can, can, can I ask you this? Have you considered that by just embracing the real, that like we said last week, that target will continually move and that you'll be in embracing something that continues to deteriorate further and further in every, in every generation? See, the truth is it might be painful for some of us to embrace a biblical worldview when it comes to this topic of family. That might be be painful to have to admit to some of those things or to aim for something or to always be reminded that you're not living in the ideal. But let me ask you this. If we leave the ideal, we open up our future. We open up our future relationships to even more pain. So even if it hurts, it, it, it opens the door for more pain for the future generation. How so? No divorced parent wishes for their child or grandchild to be a divorced parent. No single parent wishes for their, for their kids to have to be single parents someday. Nobody wishes that pain on their family. And that's where that idea is that we say, hey, we're in the real and that Christ shows grace to those of us who are in the real. But also calls us, as, as always when it comes to Scripture, to keep pointing to the ideal. That even that this might be one of those things that's got some of those things that twinge or offend or whatever. That the loving thing is to continue to point... To the ideal that the next generation might have the opportunity to live out what family was designed to be. Not because they they were so great at it, but that's that's what Christ's redemption does for us. You know, in a time where our culture wants to redefine and deconstruct what a family is, the question is this, will we choose to intentionally build a biblical worldview around this topic? Because if we don't intentionally choose to do it, I can promise you that the other worldviews are intentionally trying to change yours. You know, as we see the things going on in our life that we don't intentionally go to scripture over, we'll just inadvertently pick those up as if those are the truth of what, of what life is really all about. And I believe that there's something better because he says there is. You know, and, and, and last thought, you know, our worldviews, like we said before, they come into contact and conflict with other worldviews. And there can be strong feelings as a result. And this is what I've seen often where there's Christians that, that you know, they think Christianly or that they have a biblical worldview and they, and they come across somebody who doesn't share that worldview and it becomes hostile. But the truth is that our, that, that our worldview was meant to be in, in this world uh, an opportunity to offer hope, to offer life, to offer light, and to offer love. And I encourage you with your worldview, as you look at the world It it was the, the realization for us to choose, to choose that worldview for us. We can't choose it for someone else. We can only offer it, which is what my hope is today as I'm speaking this to you. I'm not telling you this is what you need to do, you have to do. I'm simply asking, as a Jesus follower, do you intentionally want to build? Do you intentionally choose to build a worldview that's based on Scripture and based on His truth? And I'd encourage if you, you know, like I said earlier, if you come to different conclusions or if you read through scripture, you come to different understandings, instead of canceling me, would you email me? Would you just say, hey, you know, have you considered this? And like I've said before, please send me scripture, not opinion. But let me know what your thoughts are on this, that we might together build a biblical worldview in 2022. I believe our culture depends on it. I believe our world needs to see it, needs to hear it. But they need to hear it presented in a way that, that shows the love of Christ through it all. So can we pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing design that we see for, for life, for family. Father, I just lift up those today who really are hurting uh, and just experiencing the hurt that's come through family relationships. And uh, it, it cuts to the core but God, I know that your word promises you're close to the brokenhearted, that you're a father to the fatherless. God, that you're a friend that sticks closer than a brother, that you're the one who heals us, restores us, redeems us. Father, I pray that as a result of this, that as we seek out your word, as we determine to see our world the way you see it, that it would not only benefit our lives, but it would help us to reach our world for you. God, I pray this uh, in your name and i trust you holy spirit to lead and gu- to lead and guide us through this may you lead us into truth today again i pray in your name amen amen well before you switch this off, would you take a, take a minute to just uh, think about some of these questions? If you're meeting in a house church, I'd encourage you to chat with some of those around you. If you're watching it alone, to, to, to get with somebody on the phone and just, just chat through some of these things to see what more Holy Spirit may want to do in your life as a result. So here they are, questions to get you started. What jumped out at you from today's talk? What was something like, oh, I need to think about that more? Uh, you know, I, I, I wonder about that. And then, uh, secondly, you know do you think god 's design for family is uh is relevant today or not? Why or why not? Do you think it 's relevant god 's design for it? Uh, then third, do you think that kuiper 's sphere sovereignty, that idea of different spheres having uh, their own their own god given authority and responsibility to God, do you think uh, that lines up with scripture and, and and why or why not? And the answer obviously would have to include scripture and I, I would encourage you to dig and then uh, then our last one there, do you feel the tension between ideal and real? We talked about that. Do you feel that tension? And do you try to escape it? And, and how do you approach it? Which one do you lean to? And, and why is that? Uh, or why not? And then finally, is there something that we can pray about today? I'd encourage you, if you have those opportunities, pray together. Um, pray with one another on the phone, in, in the room, pray out loud. Uh, it's a great, great, great practice to, uh, to, to do. And what a, what a great encouragement to one another. So thanks to uh, to each of you for listening in. Thanks for the encouragement you are to me. Pray that you have a, a blessed week and uh, look forward to uh, part four next week. We'll see you then.